Are you in Indianapolis? Uh, just outside of home. Okay, yeah. I think maybe we talked about this. My roommate from college lived in Carmel. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So I've been there a couple times to visit her. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Go visit the uh, former vice president if you so desire. He's oh, hanging his hat there right now. Well, Dan Quill. Uh, well, Quill's here. Oh, oh, no, oh Pence. Pence. Uh, yeah. And haven't 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 stopped by with a plate of cookies or anything as of yet. Oh gosh. Oh gosh. I know. It's just all such a loaded topic for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's just not. I used to like to talk about politics, and now I'm like, I can't even. I just like. I just. I'm sure it never comes up with uh, with your novels. <laughs> uh, well, it's kind of, I mean, um, it's, um, what I like is, especially during War of 1812, of realizing how bad off we were politically, and we came through that, and it's an era that most people don't even know about. Like, we don't, they don't know that, I mean, the division was much deeper than it is now, and it's an era in our history that we don't even think about, and if we came through that, we could come through this. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's the alternative? <laughs> no, I know, but it yeah, is, you know, it's, you know, because obviously, we, you know, we know about the Civil War. We, you know, people are much more interested in the Civil War, I think, and the Revolutionary War than the War of 1812. But it's like, we almost lost our country completely. And, you know, it came so close. And most people don't even know. I mean, I didn't know until I started researching it. I had no idea how dire things really were. So um, it was kind of refreshing or, or you know, and that was the time of duels. <laughs> People were dueling on the, you know, the, in the hall of representatives and, and you know, when war of 18, when war was declared in the war of 1812, like the whole Northern states went into mourning and they hung their flags at half mast and they closed their schools, they closed their shops, they told funeral bells. So this, meanwhile, the Southern states and the Western states were like having a huge party. They were having parades, they were having fireworks. I mean, it was just absolute opposite reactions of just like complete and total division. So it's just, um, kind of amazing that by the end of the war that we all pulled together in the war itself created a sense of nationalism that we didn't have before. So it's very inspiring. So, I mean, that's like, um, I don't know, is that silver lining type stuff or do we look at that as part of the process of how we got to where we are? Not necessarily because that has to be the process, but it simply was. It simply was. It was just something we had to live through because when we look at James Madison, he was sworn in 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 1809. And we were only 20 years old then. George Washington was sworn in in 1789. So if we think back now that we're in 2022, which is mind boggling in itself, if we think back to 20 years ago, 2002, that our president then was George W. Bush and our favorite TV show was Friends. And if we think that try to uh, grasp the concept of what if our country just started in 2002 like it just shows how young our country was at that point that we had won the war we had won the peace but we didn't really know what to do with it we knew we didn't want to be a monarchy but we didn't really know what that meant and you know we had Thomas Jefferson answering the door as president looking like a farmer and holes in his slippers because he didn't want to appear monarchical but we didn't really have any traditions we didn't have any we didn't have a sense of Americanness. I mean, even back then, people would say the United States are. They wouldn't say the United States is. 
because it was so regional. Everybody identified by their individual state much more than as an American. And it was at the end of the War of 1812 that people started to say the United States is, that we were unified enough to have that single identity as one, which, I mean, that just gives me the chills every time I think about it, of just how the um, our sense of nationalism arose basically because from the ashes of Washington City, that even these Federalists who had opposed the war so vehemently at the start were so outraged by the British marching in and burning down all of our public buildings that all of a sudden everyone was united against the British and everybody dug in for the Battle of Baltimore and people poured in from all over the country, all ages, shapes, genders, sizes, and worked around the clock for two weeks until the British invaded there and were able to push them back. So people that and, and even Francis Scott Key, he was a distant cousin of Dolly Madison's, and he uh, he's the one who wrote our national anthem, Star Spangled Banner, and he was a Federalist. At the beginning of the war, he called the war an abominable lump of wickedness, and there he is watching the Battle of Baltimore, and he's the one writing the land of the, about the land of the free and the home of the brave, and it's just... Like he's such a perfect example of how public opinion changed really overnight with the burning of Washington City. So, um, so now it's like when I hear the anthem, I just have so, there's so much more to it than what we, the, the average American knows. So it's, it's neat to understand the background of it because he was basically on a British ship. He was trying to free an American prisoner who was on there, and the British said, "Sure." You can take him, but you can't leave till after the battle. You're going to have to sit here and on the deck and watch, and he's going to be below decks. We can't let you leave now because you both have seen and heard way too much. So that's why he had the front row seat to the battle and then basically wrote, the, scribbled down the, the, the poem um, on, you know, just loose pieces of paper that he was able to find. And then they printed up on broadbills and then it, it became um, hugely popular. And they were, then it was set to the tune of a, a popular drinking song at the time. So I'm not sure if that's the same tune that it is now. I think it's a different one, but, um, but yeah. It's sure, it would, it would arouse folks in a pub uh, later on in the evening. It's, it's a nice tune. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, imagining the drunken people trying to hit those high notes, it'd be, that's a little... That's a little scary. Well, anybody who's been to a ball game doesn't have to imagine that. I don't think. True, true, yeah. <laughs> that, that is an American tradition, I think. That yes. Probably carried yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think we should call this the, the start of the show. We're, we're into it. Uh, so uh, Libby McNamee is, is my guest. Hi there, esteemed audience. Welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. Uh, happy to have you with us. And we're talking about all kinds of stuff. We're talking about your book, Dolly Madison and the War of 1812. So when we're talking about a, a topic as big and as far ranging as, as, as the War of 1812, it sounds like there's all there's no end to the, the number of subjects you could dig into and the, the rabbit holes you could go down. Why Dolly Madison? Oh gosh, Dolly Madison, because she really changed our country and she was such a force of good during the War of 1812 when there was such division. And Dolly was raised as a Quaker. And when she married Madison, she was kicked out of the Society of Friends. They decided they no longer wanted to be friends with Dolly after that. Um, 
but she always had this, um, her initial, her upbringing of believing in the inner light in people. And I can imagine it was probably very challenging to find the inner light of some people, but she always was the one to turn the other cheek and be kind. And when I do talks with kids, I always, I always say, can you guess what her superpower was? And, you know, they'll, oh, you know, she could, you know, you know, send fire through her, you know, fingers or whatever. And then I say, it's kindness. And it was, her kindness was very disarming. So she would approach all of these Federalists who despised her husband and continually be kind. And she would have all these social events as a way to get people together, to get people to talk to each other so that if they became friends and had some sense of cordial relationship, then they could actually have a non-heated discussion about policy initiatives. So when Dolly moved into the White House, it was basically empty. It was just a total um, disaster, really. There, were, there was no lawn, there was no gate, there was no steps, there was basically no furniture. The John and Abigail Adams only lived there for four months when they, when they lived in the president's house. So they really hadn't bothered to decorate or anything. And then Jefferson moved in and he wanted to spend his money on getting a good roof and buying floor coverings and things for the kitchen. So he brought all his furniture from Monticello. And then when he left the presidency, he took it with him, understandably so. But Dolly was basically faced with this empty house that was in total disarray with, you know, it just there was just paint um, drippings on the wall. It was just a total disaster. So Madison was, he was an introvert, she was an extrovert, and he said, well, that's okay, you know, Mr. Jefferson didn't really entertain, because Jefferson was another one who was an introvert, and um, Dolly said, oh, no, no, we are, we are not, you know, we are definitely entertaining, and she basically forced Speaker of the House Henry Clay to come in, and the people who controlled the purse strings, and shamed them of saying, the British are tossing us around like a cat with a dead mouse, and the French as well. And if we don't have a sense of, if we don't have our, um, a sense of grandeur, then we are not getting any respect from them and we're not getting any respect for our people. So basically she shamed them. She got $5,000, decorated the president's house. And then she started to advertise these parties in the newspaper. And they were called Mrs. Madison's Wednesday nights. And they were from three to five in the afternoon. And they were such a hit that they would go until midnight. And the Federalists would come because basically they had nothing else to do because Washington City had literally nothing there. There were these grand boulevards with no buildings on them. And then there were areas where there were buildings. So they called it streets, what, what's it? Streets with no buildings and buildings with no streets is what people would make fun of Washington City for. And um, so when Dolly and James first moved to, when they first moved to Washington City, when Madison was Secretary of State for Jefferson, they lived, their address was six buildings, Washington City. That was it. I mean, because it was the one place where there were six buildings together. So what Dolly did by creating this beautiful place at the president's house of a, for a place for people to congregate, that the, the Federalists showed up because even they really had nowhere to live. They couldn't bring their families because there were no buildings. They lived in these dilapidated boarding houses put up by the Capitol and they had roommates and they would fight about politics. And the only way to get away from your roommate was to go to the outhouse. So, so the Federalists came to these, these um, 
Wednesday night gatherings and they became so popular and so many people squeezed in, they became known as squeezes and they didn't need to put the ad in the paper. And Dolly included the, the women, which was revolutionary back then. She included the ladies were invited and the coachmen. So not only is Henry Clay invited, but his coachman is invited as well. So what she did was create this, try to create this American identity that we all belong, that the president's house belongs to all of us. But she, and she wanted a sense of grandeur, but she wanted to take the elitism and the exclusion away that a monarchy creates. So she would get all these people together and she would orchestrate with Madison. Well, who would you like to speak with tonight? Because Madison was five foot four, hundred pounds soaking wet. And he um, was not a looker. He was, um, he was called once a shriveled apple John. And I don't know exactly what that means, but it uh, wasn't a compliment. Flattering. Yes, not flattering at all. So he was very happy to be swept over in the corner and in his, he had one black suit and then Dolly was, you know, Bella the ball and she would wear these, you know, wonderful French gowns that um, like what Prince, uh, Queen Josephine was wearing, Empress Josephine and these turbans on her head and people would just flock to her like a rock star. But she would have this plan at the beginning of the night of who Madison wanted to talk to and she would escort those people over to Madison and he would get basically more work done at these parties than he did at his desk all day of having these power players together. And if she saw any hint of trouble or disagreement, she would just send cake and whiskey punch over to them and or go over and inquire about their grandchildren and smooth things over. So she really was the driving force of getting these uh, Repub the Republicans no affiliation with the Republican Party today, but they were called the Republicans and the Federalists actually talking together and and um, instead of basically just arguing. So she was really a driving force that came, you know, brought people together. And of course, during the burning of Washington City, she was one of the very last to leave and save the portrait of George Washington. And people absolutely loved her, um, like the headlines. Back when women's names were not even mentioned in a newspaper, her name was Headlines, and it was, you know, the spirit of a nation is roused by Dolly Madison. And I mean, she really is, she, if there's one person who really pulled us through the War of 1812, it was Dolly Madison. And, um, and not to discredit Mr. Madison, because he was phenomenal, but their, their star power together, um, they call them, they call them um, Washington's first power couple, was amazing. And um, because as we know, as a president, you need to also have appeal. People need to like you and people tend to support candidates who they like, even if their politics are different. And she was so likable across the board and he was the workhorse, you know, and he was the one getting everything done. So together they just made this formidable team and it actually, what funny quote, and then I'll stop talking and let you talk. No, you're good. <laughs> but um, the first time Madison ran for president, he ran against Charles Pinckney from South Carolina. When Charles Pinckney lost, he said, um, I lost to Mr. and Mrs. Madison. I would have stood a better chance had I run against Mr. Madison alone. <laughs> 
I love this idea that that, that during the party, our group is getting a little bit, maybe a little raucous, a little out of control. And she's like, oh, send a whiskey punch. That should should calm the situation. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And and she would just, you know, oh, you know, I I, I heard your wife is sick or that kind of thing. I mean, she would just walk around at these parties and she would try to put everyone at ease. And like every, every, you know, whether it was the coachman or, you know, a big political figure, she would walk around and introduce herself. And she had this parrot, um, Polly, this pet parrot, she would walk around with Polly on her shoulder. And um, Polly- Who are, are listening instead of watching, uh, let yeah. me put a, a, a parrot on her shoulder. <laughs> yeah, a green, is a big, huge um, green macaw parrot. It was a gift from a South African or South American diplomat. But um, it was an icebreaker because people would who would see- Dolly, they would be just absolute tongue-tied, like it was like they'd seen Mick Jagger or something. I mean, she was such a rock star before there were rock stars that people would get completely tongue-tied. So she would walk around with with Polly, and Polly was very colorful (laughs) in her language. The uh, French maitre d' would teach teach, um, Polly naughty French swear words to say, and um, (laughs) but she would also walk around with a copy of Don Quixote, or um, Pride and Prejudice. And then she would use that as a conversation piece, but those were two very popular novels then. And if people, she would say, oh, have you read this? And if someone said, oh no, I haven't, she'd say, oh, don't worry, I haven't read it either. But if the person said they had read it, then she would discuss it with them because she had actually read the novels. But she just would, she always put herself in other people's shoes and always um, showed kindness to whoever it was. And part of it, I think, was her very humble upbringing that she was, um, she, cause she grew up poor, so she could relate to people of all, you know, all different parts of society and, um, just everybody loved her. Everybody loved Dolly. And Henry Clay even said that to her at one point, he said, everyone loves Mrs. Madison. And, you know, she kind of blushed and she said, that's because Mrs. Madison loves everybody. So, so. she grew up uh, poor and and outside all of this, where do you think, where did, because I, I, I encountered a phrase uh, reading about your book that I hadn't encountered, it, I don't think I've encountered elsewhere, is charm offensive. She was yeah. not charm offensive during, during the war. Where do you think she got the skills that she needed to do this and pull this off? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think a lot of it was just how she, just her personality, but um, she was one of, I think it was seven kids and she had two sisters and they were all very gregarious, the three of them. So they used to call them the Merry Wives of Windsor, the three, the three sisters. And, um, but uh, so Dolly grew up in Virginia in Scotchtown. Um, She was a distant cousin of Patrick Henry in uh, in Hanover County, Virginia. And then when the Revolutionary War ended, her parents freed their slaves because Quakers did not believe in slavery. Then they moved to Philadelphia and they, uh, her father opened up a starch business. And I remember first reading it and thinking, um, that does not sound very lucrative, a starch business. Well, it wasn't. And he went bankrupt. In the Society of Friends, that's considered a disapproval from God. And he was cast out of the Society of Friends and was devastated. And he went to bed for two years and he died of depression. And so there they were in downtown Philadelphia. And his wife, Dolly's mother, had no choice but to open up the house as a boarding house. And at that point, 
uh, Philadelphia was the capital of the United States while Washington City was being constructed. So one of they took in all these senators and congressmen, and one of their boarders was was Aaron Burr. And um, but when Dolly's father was dying, he asked her to marry this young Quaker lawyer, John Todd. And she did marry him. They were very happy together. They had a newborn boy and they had a toddler boy. And then in 1793, the yellow fever epidemic swept through Philadelphia, just devastating the population. And her husband and her newborn died on the same day. So there she was, 25. She's got a toddler boy and She's beautiful and just radiates joy and kindness, just her personality. So she was the most sought after woman in Philadelphia at that point. And nowadays, it probably, if you were 25 years old and you had a two-year-old son, it might not, you know, it might, might affect your dating possibilities. But back in those days, life expectancy was so much shorter that um, she was very much sought after. And James Madison saw her on the street and was just awestruck by her. And he asked his friend Aaron Burr to introduce them. So, and the rest, as they say, is history. So um, that was the last met... time Aaron Burr ever interfered in U.S. history. That, yeah. that was it. <laughs> yeah. So um, she and Madison got married within a few months. So I'm sure at that point, people were saying, you know, Dolly Payne, um, Todd, you know, she's dating who, she married who, like of all these suitors, she would pick this basically, you know, dweeby James Madison to marry, but she did. And they, they were, you know, they were very happy together. They were very, like, she said, our hearts understand each other. And, you know, there's some debate about whether or not she kind of married him at first as like a good provider for her son that, you know, she said that her two-year-old son loved him and was hanging on his suit right away. And, and she knew he was a very good man, but he was 42 years old. He was 17 years older. He was already an established founding father and he was a sitting congressman from Virginia, you know, father of the Bill of Rights, you know, father of the constitution. And um, here she is, this 25-year-old um, Quaker. And then she was cast out of the church for marrying a non-Quaker, for marrying Madison. And that's, she was very happy about because she could cast off this wearing these um you know the simple quaker dress you know the plain gray dress all of a sudden she could wear all this lovely um vibrant colors and and have these you know grandiose have a grandiose wardrobe and then she started wearing all these turbans and jewelry and so she loved that so that's her passion for fashion really came out and i think it was part because she was repressed her whole life from dressing with any flair at all that then she just really, and, and she married someone with money. So she had money to buy all these lovely clothes. And um, so she would order these um, fashion dolls from Paris and they would, she would get in the mail a little doll and it would be, the doll would be wearing whatever the um, popular dress of the day was in Paris. So then she would get the doll and she would give it to her seamstress and say, will you please make me this dress in my size? And so she was always on the cutting edge of fashion. She was always, she would always have like the newest dress from Paris. And, um, and you know, Madison didn't mind, but I mean, he, he just wore his, he had one black suit that he would wear every day. And, you know, it worked for them. He didn't, he didn't mind the bills that were coming in. 
Well, it sounds like he must have been tremendously relieved if that wasn't a, a part of thing that he, he enjoyed so very much. And now he's got Dolly, who's sucking all the oxygen out of the room, but in a good way, because she's entertaining the huge crowd and he can get away with who it is he, he directly needs to speak to an influence, right? Right. Yeah, because, I mean, he, he would rather sit home in front of a roaring fire with his Greek and Latin tomes. I mean, that... You know, he he was a total introvert and but, you know, such a hard worker. I mean, he was so thorough. He would, you know, before he made a decision on anything, he'd read, you know, 20 treatises on it and, you know, just very, very scholarly, spoke six languages. He went to Princeton and um, but it was it was really neat of a marriage where you really have these two opposites coming together instead of picking at each other and saying, you know, Jemmy, why aren't you more social? And him saying, you know, why aren't you more academic? You know, that they appreciated what each, that the, the gifts that the other had to offer and work together as such a team. It was a really neat relationship, but, um, but people, you know, is it, people would, um, say a lot of nasty things about them and and like during the campaign of you know that she was actually having an affair with Thomas Jefferson and and that you know all kinds of kind of sexual commentary that you know they just chose to ignore because they never actually had children together um so I assume that Madison was he was always a very sickly person for really from birth like he never really expected to live into um, you know, way into adulthood. And it, basically what they think now is he had like epilepsy and he had all kinds of digestive problems. So, um, you know, so he was just this little scrawny guy and she was, you know, five foot eight, very voluptuous, very like Rubenesque, and, um, you know, towered over him really. But um, they were, they were good with it. And uh, well, yeah. See how bad they are. Uh, female politicians are treated in the press now. When we're talking back when they didn't even mention women in the paper, so I can't even imagine all the slander that must have been out there uh, uh, facing her. Yes. I yeah, the, people directly to her face it. there in her parties. I mean, I'm sure you don't want to be too rude if there's only six buildings and you don't want to get, you don't want to, you don't want to get cast out. Where else? You, what, what other party are you going to go to? But I imagine there had to have been just tremendous rudeness directed uh, mm -hmm. right at her. Um, yes. Was there any truth to some of these rumors? Do you think that she she did have uh, suitors outside of uh, outside of Mr. Madison? No, I honestly, I I I don't think they're true at all. I think it was just you know people just being mean spirited and and um, you know jealous and um, there was um, a woman um, Rosalie Calvert and she had come over from Belgium during the Great Terror and she actually lived in Maryland right over the line and like she hated she, she hated Jefferson she called him Tommy Jeff and then she called um she called Dolly Queen Dalla Lala so I mean th there's always going to be people that aren't going to like some you know someone all of us you know I've heard that 10 percent of people there's 10 percent of people in the world that I'm not going to like right away. And there's 10% of people in the world who aren't going to like me right away. And that's just a given. But um, I think I'm above average on both. I sure. know that I, I told that to a friend. She's like, do you think it's that low? <laughs> like, well, um, but, um, but Dolly was just very good at like, if people were rude to her, she just kind of ignored it. And she would always take the high road and she would just kind of keep on and keep on and keep on. And she would, 
approach, especially these Federalist congressmen's wives, and she would call on them and she would invite them over to the president's house for these, what she called dove parties. And she'd serve, you know, sardine toast and these lovely bullions and cakes and all of that. And she would just chip away at these people. And finally, they just couldn't resist her charm and they would eventually become friends with her. And then she would be able to say, well, this is why my husband believes this. And she would try to explain it to the wives, hoping that the wives would go back and explain Madison's policy beliefs to their husbands. So she just she just would continually turn the other cheek when people were rude to her. And um, just amazing. But yeah, I can only imagine at these um, at these Wednesday night um, soirees that she had of people. And I, I incorporated that into the novel of her overhearing people saying like, horribly rude things about her and Madison and, and and her just choosing to ignore it and um you know but you know I but it was kind of fun to imagine what was going on in her mind of like you know I'd love to slap this woman and then she she doesn't act on it but you know as a human it's to be open your house to these to these people and then there they are bad-mouthing your husband and talking about what a little you know grumpy sourpuss he is over in the corner and um you know i just can't or people that her husband's done all these political favors for or you know congressmen who congressmen's wives that she would call on the minute they moved to washington city and didn't know anyone and she would introduce them to everyone and then the woman you know the wife would turn on her and be saying these nasty things behind her back and and I, I can't imagine how frustrating and hurtful it must have been for her. But she just kept on um, and was very effective. I mean, after she passed away, everything was Dolly Madison brand. I mean, Dolly Madison, you know, lumber, Dolly Madison shoes, Dolly Madison, everything, because everybody loved Dolly. And like Dolly Madison cupcakes is is the predecessor to hostess cupcakes that we have today it was originally called dolly madison cupcakes oh really it, ah. yeah it's kind of, yeah neat little trivia but yeah it's because she was so um she was so well liked across the political spectrum like her her funeral was the largest in american history they the president closed the federal government that day and the president gave the eulogy so um Zachary so Taylor the largest funeral or just the largest funeral at the time yeah the largest funeral at the time up to that time but you know they closed the federal government that day and that's when the president in the eulogy I I'm I can't I always mess this up it's if it's Polk or if it's Zachary Taylor who was president but um but he called her the first lady of the land and that's where the term first lady came from was used for in reference to Dolly. So that's why on the book and the subtitle, I have it, America's First Lady, because she's technically America's first first lady, because the term was coined in her honor, even though she was not the first wife of a president. Um, so, um, but, you know, her, her, she, you know, people called her Queen Dolly. She was the first woman put on a stamp. She was the, um, she laid the first cornerstone of the Washington Monument. She, um, what else? She was, she was the only private citizen given a seat in Congress. So when she would go to Congress, you know, in her old age, and if she was late, she would make them start all over again, and they would start all over again. And um, I mean, she just was a character. They called her friend of 11 presidents. 
because after Madison passed away, or, or after when Madison left office, they went back to Montpelier. And 20 years later, Madison passed away. And then she moved to Washington City. She lived, moved to um, Lafayette Square. And all of the presidents, before they were sworn in, had to go get her permission before they were sworn in. So everyone called it the Little White House. And um, and she was called friend, friend to 11 presidents because she basically knew every president through her life, you know, from George Washington on. So her sis, one of her sisters married George Washington's nephew, but he passed away. And then that sister married a Supreme Court justice from Kentucky. And then her other sister was married to a congressman from Massachusetts. So they kind of all ended up in the whole, you know, political arena because of, you know, dating all the way back to the boarding house of meeting, meeting all these people in Philadelphia when they were young. So, um, so yeah, so she and her sisters were very, very, very close. But alcoholism ran in their family. And basically, I think she had three brothers and I think basically all three of them, three of them died of alcoholism. And her son, Payne, who lived up to his name truly, he was a pain. Um, he was, he was, so he was two-year-old. The newborn son died in 1793 and the two-year-old survived pain. And he, uh, he was very spoiled. Dolly and James both spoiled him, coddled him. And he basically drove them into bankruptcy, financial ruin. She ended up having to sell Montpelier Madison was paying these huge gambling bills and womanizing and drinking and you name it, buying artwork. Um, and Madison would just pay off all her bills and uh, all of his bills. And it wasn't until Madison passed away that Dolly realized what a, a financial mess she was in and that she was bankrupt. And she basically was thrown back into the poverty of her youth once again. And she left and then she still would make excuses for her son and, oh, he struggles so. And so she moved to Washington City to Lafayette Square and left the son to, to uh, drive Montpelier into the ground. And he did. And, and um, she had to sell it. But so she was wearing clothes that were 20 years old from the presidency. And some of her former slaves were bringing her groceries. I mean, she had no money at all. And Congress felt sorry for her and they enacted some, uh, they, they bought some of Madison's papers from her because at that point there was no presidential pension or anything like that. So they, but they even put in it when they bought the papers from her, they put in there a stipulation that Payne could not have access to these funds because everybody knew how horrible he was. So he ended up in like debtor's prison. I mean, he really, I mean, I, I hate to speak so badly of someone, but there really was nothing redeeming about him. It was really a shame. Very sad. Because she always felt sorry for him that he had lost his father and his brother. And then Madison was, you know, he was his adoptive father. And he, you know, so he coddled, he felt bad for Dolly. So he just played along with it. And, and um, you know, so Payne was just very, very spoiled. And it was, yeah, very sad. Well, I mean, I don't know him, but I imagine that's good. obviously <laughs> neither do you. <laughs> neither of us have met him. Um, but uh, I imagine it, it has to be difficult to grow up. I mean, I, I mean, that's that's a child of a celebrity, right? Right, right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a pattern you see in you know in history of yeah, it, it, it's 
but you know, it's a shame. It's like, he had all these opportunities, you know, he like Madison even arranged for him to go on the peace delegation over in um, Belgium and go along on that. And then he was just out carousing all night long. And, you know, kind of all those rumors came wafting back and, you know, I mean, it, it is a shame, um, but it's, um, you know, he basically never really heard no in his life and um, it didn't, didn't help him any in the long run. But uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's a difficult situation for, for all of them. Um, yeah, but she was very close to, she had some nieces, some of her sister's daughters, she was very close to. So um you know, they always had, even during the um, presidency, they had her sister, who the widowed sister lived with them with her three kids and the other sister just lived right down the street. So the house was always full of children, but they, they for high school, they sent, um, they sent Payne. He went to a boarding school up in Baltimore, you know, but, and then she, you know, he didn't, he didn't do very well in his studies, didn't apply himself very well. And, you know, kind of the whole, the whole scene. Um, so it was, that was a shame. I know that was a source of great sadness for her. Well, hopefully, uh, you know, I was going to say something needlessly mean to a current celebrity child and I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be better and rise above that. Instead, I'm going to go back, uh, and ask about something you had, uh, we, we kind of blew by earlier, but that was that, uh, at a time when women aren't even mentioned in the paper, Dolly has the insight to bring women to the party. What prompted that and what was the advantage of that? Well, um, I, I think part of it is she loved to socialize with women and she enjoyed it. But she also, I think, believed that the men would behave better if the women were there. <laughs> and that, you know, because at that point, she's would be worried about having duels in the White House and the president's house because I'm, there were going to be the foreign ministers from Great Britain and France and all the other countries there. But I mean, there were literally duels on the floor of the Hall of Representatives. So for um, that was a legitimate worry. But also part of it was she really wanted to cultivate this national identity and she really wanted people to feel like we were, we're all Americans and we all own the president's house and we, it belongs to all of us. So even with all her redecorating, she only redecorated the three front rooms that were on display for everyone. She didn't do her own bedroom. She didn't do any of the, you know, the back quarters at all. So it was, she really was a, a visionary. She really was able to um, see the big picture and, and, um, used you know, all of her creative energy in creating this national identity. And like she started the Easter roll that they still have at the White House. She started the, really the formality of having the New Year's uh, receptions at the White House. She started the um, um, having the um, band play Hail to the Chief when the president walks in the room because people were making fun of Madison because he was so tiny. He wore this little, he had this little like, hat with a cockade on this commander in chief hat and you know he's this tiny little guy and people were making fun of him and um so she started whenever they had a dinner party she would have the band play hail to the chief when he walked in trying to garner um support for him as commander in chief so she just really had a gift for um like seeing how people perceive our our sense of Americanness and what 
um, what people need. And that was part of the reason she didn't want to leave Washington City and she didn't want to leave the president's house when the British were coming in and everyone else is evacuating. And she was one of the very last to leave because she knew how bad it would look that the president's wife was fleeing too and that how horrible that would be for morale and even staying even later of realizing that the portrait of President uh, George Washington was still hanging on the wall that we I don't care if I even get caught, but we can't let that portrait get into the hands of the British and have them parading it through the streets of London. And that would be devastating to, for American morale. So she really just, um, just had such a good read on people and knew what would draw people together and what would motivate them. So, I mean, her timing in history is really amazing. And she came along really at the perfect time where, you know, like, you know, we had this country, but we didn't have any of the traditions. We didn't have any, um, we did, you know, we're so, we were so afraid of appearing like a monarchy that we were kind of going the other way. And then she said, okay, we, we can have nice things and not come across as a monarchy. Like for example, she didn't wear diamonds. She's that she stopped wearing diamonds and in, in all of those, you know, fine stones because she did not want to come across as a queen. She's the one who started wearing pearls. She's the one who made pearls what they are today. She started that um, whole style trend of wearing pearls, but it was kind of her way of, of um, you know, casting off these things that, because um, people did call her Queen Dolly, but that was not an image that she really wanted to cultivate. So there was a lot going on up there. I mean, she was really brilliant in her, you know, Madison was brilliant and she was brilliant in different ways that really complemented each other. So for uh, esteemed audience who's watching or listening to us, you don't have a script in front of you. All of this is, is extemporaneous uh, that, you're, that you're carrying around in, in your mind. You've yeah. written an entire first person present tense account uh, from, from, from Dolly Madison. How do you, how do you go about doing the research that you need to do? How do you put yourself in that mindset? Uh, well, I actually, since it's, it's technically a children's book, although lots of adults have read it and enjoyed it. I start off a lot with really simple, like I start with like Wikipedia and I start with children's books and because I really didn't know that much about Dolly Madison or the War of 1812. And then I basically just start collecting books. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a nerd with the uh, Amazon package thumps on the front steps and I go down and, um, and um, tear open the, the plastic bag. But um, I do that. And like, I went to Montpelier a bunch of times. I did a special Dolly Madison tour there. I, I've met um, uh, um, and made a wonderful friend um, um, in Boston. She does, a, um, she has a business called History at Play. And she does, with the pandemic, she does all sorts of different um, portrayals of, um, what is it, little known yet important American women. But like she portrays Dolly Madison. So I've seen that. And um, I actually saw a woman who portrayed um, Suki, who was Dolly Madison's enslaved servant. Um, but a lot of it was fun of just traveling around, going to Montpelier. There's also a James Madison Museum in Orange um, that I went to and got a speeding ticket on the way there. So be careful when you're in Orange, Virginia. There's a big speed trap. Um, you, were, you were very excited to get there. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, so um, that's a great museum. And uh, so I visited the Octagon House up in, in uh, Washington City, where Dolly and James moved into after the 
president's house was burned down. So that was really neat. They have a sign in front of it and it's got a picture of Madison and it says, you know, it's 1812. Do you know where your president is? And um, <laughs> so that's just a block or two from the White House. So, and then I uh, had the opportunity to go into the White House and I got to see a picture of George Washington's um, huge portrait in on the East Room of the White House, you know, where same place where Teddy Roosevelt's kids would roller skate. And I think the, um, what's it, Lyndon Johnson's daughter got married in that room as well. But then they have a portrait of Dolly Madison in uh, next door in the parlor. In, you know, of course, this is a new building because they had to rebuild the building, but her parlor was right next to the East Room. So they put the portrait, the Gilbert Stewart portrait of Dolly, um, they put it um, over the uh, through the doorway. So basically they have the Dolly Madison portrait where she can look, she can look over the portrait of George Washington and keep an eye on it. So that's just a little history geek humor of the way they positioned the painting, whoever, you know, had a good sense of humor. Um, so yeah, I love to be able to do the exploration and go out and actually go to these places and talk to people. And like uh, the researchers at, um, at Montpelier were very, very helpful. Um, Hope Hicks um, gave me some of her um, papers that she's written. It was really helpful. So um, it, you know, so it's fun to read the books and the Dolly Madison papers are online through UVA and you can also order a book with her letters in it and the books are all quoted, but um but it was neat because, um, you know, with the Revolutionary War, you know, there's so much information when I was researching for my first book, but the character of my first book, Susanna Bowling, there was very little information about her. And then this was kind of the flip side is, you know, there's not quite as much about the War of 1812, but there were, you know, volumes and volumes and volumes about Dolly. So um, that was, you know, that was kind of neat. But, um, <coughs> but I love just you know, collecting all the books and, um, and even there's even a, uh, like a PBS, um, documentary about Dolly that I watched on TV. And, but I mean, I think, I think the, uh, the book would make such a great movie, the, you know, and the war of 1812 is so exciting that, you know, we haven't even talked about the battle of new Orleans. I mean, that was just like unbelievable. That would just make such a phenomenal movie. So it was neat of just kind of, um, you know, just reading and and um, traveling around, just all kinds of day trips, and and then finding other history geeks along the way. I've got a now a really good friend. Um, his name is Kyle Jenks, and he does an interpretation of James Madison, and he's phenomenal. So I met him at a at a group called History Camp. We met. It was before the pandemic, so he lives in Philadelphia. But I've also met a, another um, another interpreter at. Uh, there's another interpreter at. Um, Monticello, I'm sorry, at Montpelier, who does an excellent job as well. But um, so it's fun to kind of the history geeks you meet along the way really make it a lot of fun. So I, another friend I met, she's done, um, it's her, her group is, it's called Digital Yarbs, Y-A-R-B-S, but she's made these um, portraits, like basically um, 3D, like facial portraits of Madison. She's a big fan of Madison as well. And I'm probably not using the right lingo for it. Um, it's um, life mask. And so she's created these different life masks. So she's another one, really neat person. 
And um, so even like yesterday we were emailing. And so that's been really, really fun just with all of the, the whole, you know, writer's journey of um, like yesterday I sent copies of Dolly Madison and the War of 1812 off to Mount Vernon. And that was like the best feeling in the world to send that off on George Washington's birthday to Mount Vernon. And, and I've got the, got it in it um, in Colonial Williamsburg and lots of other places. So, um, so, so I've spoken to lots and lots of different groups. I mean, in addition to schools, I've spoken to, um, to uh, lots of daughters of the American Revolution group, you know, um, Sis, uh, Sons of the American Revolution, all kinds of historical societies. And it's really fun because it's just this, you know, love of our country and love of history that unites us. And to have these friends that are, you know, that ostensibly you'd look on paper and think, oh, you have nothing in common. And yet now they're really good friends. And, you know, nobody cares what kind of car you drive or what neighborhood you live in or, you know, any of the kind of suburban things that people get caught up in. It's just neat to have this whole, um, whole like different kind of friendship based on shared interests. So um, I feel very lucky to have even, you know, to be part of this, to even be, to be on this podcast. It's just wonderful to kind of share it, share the, you know, my passion for history that I really, I didn't really discover till I was in my 40s when I first started writing my my first book. So people always ask me, oh, were you a history major in this and that? And I'm like, no, I, I thought history was boring. I used to go to Colonial Williamsburg and I'd go to the outlets and my husband would laugh and say, you know, there's a whole nother part of Colonial Williamsburg. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now I go there and I don't even go to the outlet. So um, that's why I like writing in the in the middle grade genre and kind of, you know, geared to kind of the 12 year old of trying to introduce them to history, that history can be fun and exciting and entertaining. It's not necessarily just dates and places and boring facts to memorize, that it's stories about people and quirky people. And um, so that's, I'd love to inspire them so that I wish I had started as a historian when I was 12, instead of discovering my love for history in, you know, in my forties. So that's why I love, trying to get them excited about history. Now, you were uh, a U.S. Army JAG officer in Korea and uh, Bosnia, Germany, and Washington State. So yep. you, you must have had at least a, a sense of patriotism, I, I imagine. And if you didn't, I'm sure they, they gave you one. <laughs> <once you're enlisted. laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my parents are um, very, I grew up in, in Massachusetts in the Boston area, but my parents are very patriotic. And uh, so that was in, definitely instilled in me at a young age. And, but a lot of it um, was my desire. I love to travel. And at that point I was coming out of law school and I really did not want to just like park myself in a law firm and um, just, you know, I went to school in, in Washington DC and I, I just wanted to get out while I was young and single and travel. And uh, so that was, that was definitely part of my motivation for, um, for joining the army was doing the far-flung travel to go. I was like, why don't I go live in Korea for a year? Why not? And um, and then I got to spend a summer in Germany, and then I was at Fort Lewis outside of Seattle for four years, and um, you know, and then Club Med Bosnia for six months um, in the mud pit. So it was a good experience, but I, you know, I was in about five and a half years, and then I was like, okay, I'm good. You know, I'm I'm ready to be a normal citizen. Um, but I definitely wouldn't trade those experiences for the world. Um, 
it's definitely, I just think it's at that age, it's just so good to get out and travel, whether people want to, young people want to come back to where they grew up afterwards, but it's just good to take a few years and just live somewhere else and learn, you know, force yourself to be exposed to different cultures and just different ways of doing things. And it's, it just makes you grow so much as a person. And I miss traveling now, but I mean, cause back in the times of James and Dolly Madison, I mean, they didn't, I mean, travel was very difficult. Like the um, battle of Baltimore or the battle of New Orleans, Louisiana was our newest state and no one had been there. I mean, that's what was one of the most shocking things is like with the battle when the battle of New Orleans started to take place, no one had been to Louisiana because they had no roads because it was all those bayous and swamps. And because there were so many Native Americans on the route there, it was very dangerous. And then if you went by uh, ship, you had to go all the way down around Florida and there were lots of pirates. So the fact that we admitted these states into our nation that no one had been to and, you know, Louisiana, they spoke French. I mean, so when the whole war came down to the Battle of New Orleans, I mean, all these people in Washington City must have been thinking, oh my gosh, our, our, our country rests in the hands of these people. And are they really even Americans? Like, do they really even care? Are they really going to fight for us? They don't even speak the same language. And, you know, Andrew Jackson, just amazing, you know, declared martial law, gathered got everybody's guns, hunting guns, drafted all the men folk and, you know, pulled together these, you know, French aristocrats, Spanish aristocrats, Creoles, Cajuns, privateers, pirates, uh, the, you know, the, the, the rednecks from Kentucky that he had brought in with me from Kentucky and Tennessee. And, you know, he, had, he and he had free blacks and he got them all together, trained them up and they whipped the British in 30 minutes this is the same British army that the um, the same British army that defeated Na Napoleon and the same British army that burned Washington city down. And Andrew Jackson got this ragtag motley crew together. And like within half an hour, he had killed five or six of the generals, the commanding general of the, of the, the battle, the British, he was killed right off his horse. And apparently the whole field was just covered in red and it wasn't blood, it was red uniforms. And, um, you know, absolutely amazing. And um, I mean, that's something I really did not know any, I mean, I'd heard of the Battle of New Orleans. I knew it was Andrew Jackson, but I didn't really know how spectacular it was. And, um, and that's what paved the way for him to become president, that he was a national hero. And same with William Henry Harrison became president later on. So even though we don't focus much on the War of 1812, they're really, it really was a breeding ground for a lot of our future leaders. You know, Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun. Um, so, and, you know, John Quincy Adams, all that, like they were the young guys and, you know, Madison and Monroe, they were the old guys. So it's kind of, I love that with the kind of, you have these two different eras kind of meshing together. So the era, once Madison left and, you know, that was really one of the most peaceful times in our country's history. They called it the era of good feelings when Monroe came in. So everybody hated Madison when the um, 
after the burning of Washington City, as much as they loved Dolly, they hated Madison. And then, and then once the Battle of New Orleans happened, and um, and everything, and the uh, the peace treaty came from Belgium, and the war ended. All of a sudden, everyone loved Madison, and that was the era of good feelings. And and, Ma and Monroe walked in. He was like, you know, piece of cake. You know. Madison, when he came into office, he inherited, you know, this country on the brink of war so divided and, and Monroe walked in and it was like, you know, it was all tied up in a nice little bow for him, for um, Monroe. So it just, you know, that's just, it's just every president has their challenges or lack of challenges. Um, but um, um, yeah, so that was the last, so the Monroe was the last of what they call the Virginia dynasty of presidents. Because after that, I think after Monroe, it was, um, then there was the big kerfuffle where um, John Quincy Adams ended up becoming president. And it was the big, you know, where Andrew Jackson actually had more votes than, um, he had more votes than, um, than, than uh, John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay. But I think it was Henry Clay. Yeah, that's an era I need to study more. But basically, that was very divisive. Because we're uh, hearing previews of what your third book might be about, or, or are you well, sure. something else? Oh, my third book. I'm I'm working on it right now. It's, if you could really see my office, you'd see I'm hard at work. Um, I am working on a book on Elizabeth Van Lu, who was a uh, Union spy in Richmond during the Civil War, and she was a high society woman. Um, one of the wealthiest women, but she was anti-slavery from the very beginning. Her family had come from the North, but she organized this incredible spy ring and um, uh, reported to General Grant, and Grant called her the most valuable spy that he had in Richmond during the war. And at the end of the war, when he first came to Richmond, Grant, the first thing he did was have come and have tea at Elizabeth Van Lu's house. And, um, but people hated her. I mean, she was reviled, um, poor woman. I mean, it was, it was like dangerous for her to leave her house after the war because people had suspected her all along, but they didn't really know, they couldn't quite pin her on it. And there was also a lot of respect given to her because of her aristocratic standing in society. So people were so angry because they realized they'd been duped that she really had been a spy all along. So Grant ended up making her postmistress of Richmond, which back then was like a very coveted spot. So she had that, that slot for eight years. Um, and, um, but then after that, she, um, you know, she was persona non grata after that. But um, so she, She's um, quite a legend in the Richmond area. And um, so I'm starting off, you know, with Fort Sumter and um, Virginia secession and then moving in. She started um, taking care of Union prisoners of war because basically the women were only, the Richmond women were only interested in, in helping the wounded Confederate soldiers. So she started helping the um, Union soldiers, the prisoners of war there. And then um, kind of one thing led to another and then ended up developing this spy ring and, you know, secret messages because she would go to the jail and she would get information from the newly apprehended soldiers. She would get um, 
you know, she would, you know, she used all sorts of things. Like she had a, she would bring food and she had a secret drawer in her custard dish and they could exchange notes and she would give them a book to read and she would pinprick under certain letters and send them a message. And then she would get the book back a few days later and they would have returned a message using the same pin, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, the, you know, all the, and then delivering messages, she had like five different relay points to get it to General Grant and, you know, using the lemon juice and all that kind of stuff. So I think kids will really enjoy that, uh, you know, all the, all the different spy techniques and all that um, stuff. So it's interesting trying to figure out who, who the players were, because of course it was secret, you know, of who the players were in the spy ring and um, all that. So I actually just went over the weekend, I went to um, Shaco Hill Cemetery where she was buried and she was so poor. Another one, kind of like Dolly Madison, she spent all her money on um, helping people. She would buy slaves, like relative, uh, slaves who worked for her, she would buy their relatives so they wouldn't be sold down south to keep the families together. Um, but she died very poor. But one of the soldiers she helped was Colonel Paul Revere. So he was Paul Revere's, I think it was grands great must have been great grandson that she helped during the war so it was his family and some wealthy boston families that actually paid for her gravestone um i could email you some pictures i just took them the other day it was really neat um i haven't started posting things on um social media yet because i'm i know it's going to take me a couple years to write this book so i'm kind of pacing myself but but it's really interesting um just learning about all the ins and outs of the Civil War and and that people really, people even in, in, in the South weren't, you know, some people were like the South Carolinians were really hardcore. When they seceded, it was like unanimous. Like Virginia, you seceded nine months later and it was basically only after Fort Sumter and only after Lincoln had called up asking for troops to put down the insurrection in South Carolina. And then finally Virginia seceded. But um, so it's interesting to just see you know, there were just such a wide range of views. Whereas I feel like what, what we, you know, we think, oh, Confederate bad, you know, North good. And, you know, that everyone in the, in the South was pro-slavery and, and, you know, realizing that like everything, there's so many nuances. And, and I mean, just coming across these crazy facts, like there, I was just talking about this uh, with my James Madison friend, Kyle Jenks last night, that, that um, in the during the Civil War, if you if you lived in the South and you owned more than twenty four slaves, you were ex exempt from serving in the military. So, the most of these people that were actually fighting for the Confederacy didn't even own slaves, and a lot of it was the media kind of ginning everything up in the South, like they were like, oh, you know, Lincoln's coming down, he's going to invade, they're going to rape all our women, they're going to you know, they're, they're trying to destroy our way of life. And so these, you know, uneducated white men are, are thinking, well, I, I got to do this. I got to do this to protect my family. They're going to come down here and they're going to, you know, the war of Northern aggression. And, and um, it's really sad. Just like, I feel like a lot of people were duped and, um, you know, and a lot of people, you know, even like Lee, it's like, he, you know, he really did not, believe in slavery and all of that, but he wanted to stand with Virginia and, you know, so much of that, but I'm just realizing, 
now in Virginia, they call it the brothers war, which I never realized. I mean, you literally had brothers who were, you know, one fighting on one side, one fighting on the other. And, um, but, um, and then there was even people that were like, they were unionists, but they were pro-slavery. And I'm like, what? You know, like, but it's just interesting how history gets sort of simplified over time. And, and um, we just, you know, don't realize. And even when Virginia seceded, a lot of the people who voted um, to secede, they only did it because they were threatened. Like literally people were like, if you don't vote for this, your blood is going to run in the streets. So people were voted for it and they didn't want to vote for it. And in like the West people in Western Virginia, they were crying, you know, because they were the mountain people. They didn't even have slaves. They didn't believe in slavery. And that's when West Virginia seceded from, they seceded from Virginia and then they joined the union as West Virginia. Um, but just the image of, of them voting to leave the union and all these delegates from West, Western Virginia just sitting there like weeping is just like, it's just, it's wild, you know, it's just, it's just, everything's more complicated than it looks, Every, you know, just, it's, um, it's just, everything's not, you know, black and white. Um, just even some of these slave laws that they had in Virginia too are just amazing. Like if you freed, so like Elizabeth Van Lu had these slaves, but she couldn't, well, she could free them, but if she did free them, they had to leave Virginia within a year, they could not return. So these people didn't wanna leave everything they knew and all their family and all their friends. So basically she would treat that, she would keep them on the books as slaves, but she would treat them as if they were free. And they were allowed to, she would write a pass for them for a month. They could live elsewhere. They could take jobs. Or if they wanted to stay and work for her, she would pay them a normal wage. So she treated it as a, them as if they were free. But on the books, they weren't free because they would have had to leave Virginia. And if they stayed past that one year, they could get arrested and they, you'd be sold down river. So, and, and one of her, you know, slaves, this is very complicated, but this woman, she sent North to be educated in Philadelphia. And that was against, it was against the law for that young woman to come back to Virginia, because if you sent a slave outside of the state to get an education, they were not allowed to return ever. So illegal to teach them to teach slaves to read at the time, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. So let alone a whole education, just the reading alone is we're already in trouble. Right, right. And then and then that was at the time too that, you know, the like all that um the the um, American colonization society in Liberia was going on. So this woman was in Elizabeth Van Lu's home, you know, so, you know, obviously she treats her slaves very well. She treats them as if they're free, but then there's this woman in her home. Her name is Mary Jane Richards. She becomes Mary Jane Bowser, but she's, she's treated, she's sent up North to go to school. She goes to Liberia for five years and is a missionary over there. And I kept racking my brains and I was like, why is this, why is this, um, why, why is she being treated differently than the other, you know, slaves in the household? And then I finally, I met a um, national park um, ranger here in Richmond. His name is Nathan Hall. And he's working on a book on Elizabeth Van Lu. So he was saying that based on his research, he thinks that this woman, Mary Jane Richards, was 
um, she was half white, half black, and that her mother was white and that she was a distant cousin of the Van Loos and she was impregnated by a black enslaved person. So that was incredibly taboo and that they basically at birth took this baby and gave the baby to Elizabeth Van Loo and her mother to raise. So that this Mary Jane Richards was a relative of the Van Loos. And that's why she was treated better than the other enslaved people in their household. Does that make sense? No, but it makes, I mean, I'm following the narrative. <laughs> of course it doesn't make sense, but yeah. But so that's because I was like, just writing this book has just been, I'm like, this is all so complicated. And I was like, why is one person getting sent you know, up north to Philadelphia and the other ones aren't being sent. And then once I realized, okay, um, that makes sense. But what's, but it's um, important to kind of understand this Mary Jane Richards because she becomes part of the spy ring with Elizabeth Van Loo. And she ends up becoming, um, being employed at the Confederate White House by Jefferson Davis. And she's able to she was brilliant and she had this photographic memory and she was able to look at documents and memorize them. And then she would give all the information to Elizabeth Van Loo and they would send it up north to Grant. So she ended up being part of this, um, a part of like a vital part of the spy ring. But, but of course, you know, with all this history, once you get going, it's, um, you know, then there's people that say that this is, you know, that's made up of Elizabeth Richards really being in the Confederate White House and blah, 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 blah. But that's what is nice about saying, it, you know, being able to write it under fiction and saying, okay, this is too great of a plot twist to have Mary Jane Bowser in the Confederate White House, you know, memorizing these documents that I can put an author's note at the end and say, you know, it's debatable whether or not this is all actually true. I mean, Basically, there's only one thing that Mary Jane Richards wrote in one letter. She said that she was in there as like a laundress or something like that. So, but that's what's fun about fiction is you can say, okay, I'm going to go with it because, you know, so there was like this whole, one of the uh, members of the ring was a um, uh, um, Scottish man who ran a bakery. So he would make deliveries to the Confederate White House and then he would be able to get, you know, relay information to and from and would report to Elizabeth Van Loo. And there was another German man. He had a German restaurant. And then there were some unionist politicians. And then there were enslaved people who would deliver a lot of the messages because they wouldn't really be noticed. Whereas the, you know, white people would be noticed. Um, so she also helped orchestrate a big um, prison escape out of what's known as called Libby Prison. So that was a famous escape um, that, her spying coordinated. So yeah, she's she's amazing. I mean, that woman just really, I mean, her uh, moral fiber and strength to persevere through all that is just incredible. So how are you going to go about taking all this raw data that you're, you're collecting and sounds like you're going to go on collecting? What's that process going to be like over the next couple of years of converting all of this uh, excitement and passion into a book that people can hold their hands? Oh, that's a great question. It's, I just, um, I, I'm, I just basically take a lot of notes and I, I mean, oh my gosh, I've got books everywhere with, you know, tags in them. And, but I, I try to um, basically just really keep a huge, um, just a word document and try to 
um, take notes in there. And then when I start, say I'm working on Fort Sumter, then I can just do a search for Fort Sumter and then kind of pull all those notes together. And then I just kind of will um, organize my notes. And then I just start really like hammering away little by little. And, but part of it too, is developing the characters because, you know, the facts can be interesting, but if you don't have your characters developed, it's not as engrossing. So, um, so I've got the first few chapters done and I have a, a good friend from college who we've been working together for now about three years. She lives in Kansas city and we have a, I have a deal where every, every other Friday we submit, we call it submission time. And we have to email each other a chapter and then we'll edit the other, you know, I'll edit my friend's chapter. She'll edit mine. And then we email it back and then we'll talk on the phone, like the following Wednesday for an hour. And we'll talk through hers for half an hour. Then we talk through mine and then we set another submission date. So that's been the hugest help because it keeps me on a schedule of like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, like this Friday, I've got to submit something to Anne and I've got to, you know, what am I going to submit to her? And um, sometimes, you know, it's like Tuesday by the time we submit to each other because we're working on it. But um, but that's just been such a godsend because it's so easy to just keep skipping around and really not getting anywhere. Um, so um, that's that's really the you know, that's really what keeps me grounded. But um, I don't know. I just kind of kind of keep going through it and going like sifting through it. And and sometimes it's. I, I know the best thing I can do is to just sort of leave where, like I've been working on the um, Fort Sumter, the secession convention, and, and actually Mary Jane Richards gets married at the very beginning. She gets married at St. John's Church. So I've got like all that there, but I've kind of worked on it so much now that I'm like, okay, I just need to let, kind of like let it sit and percolate and don't look at it for a month. And then I'll kind of circle back and um, and all that. But in, but um and what I'm trying to do too is learn about the spy ring and all the characters. Cause what I'd like to do is kind of pepper them in at the beginning of her seeing them in the crowd or that they come to the wedding. And so that later on when they become part of the spy ring, people are like, oh, I remember that Scottish baker from the beginning. He's the one that brought the scones for the wedding and you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, kind of just laying sort of the, the uh, you know, trail of crumbs of trying to mention these people so that later on when they're they're, you know, become a fuller character in the book that people recognize the name. So I just kind of plug away and it's, there's probably more efficient ways to do it. And, uh, but I just sort of just keep plugging away and I keep, you know, I've got all kinds of, yeah, like right here, I've got, uh, this is, this is like the, the Bible. It's called um, Southern Lady Yankee Spy by Elizabeth Varon, um, which is really great. And then I just got, I just found this book the other day. This is about this man, Lohman. He's the German man that had the restaurant. And um, because, you know, I met the a caretaker at the cemetery the other day and he he knew a ton about the whole spy ring. So um, he had recommended this. So I, I found this. So, um, so I'm reading through that. So I just tend to just, I just keep reading and reading. And then I end up, you know, I'll reread it and, it, it eventually it synthesizes into something, but, and then, you know, by the end of the book too, I'll have like a bunch of facts that I kind of want to weave in that, you know, I just kind of leave them there because I'm, they're facts that I want to have in there, but I haven't found a home for them yet. So I just kind of keep looking at that too, of trying to figure out, okay, what do I want? 
where do I want, um, you know, can I fit this in? And, you know, sometimes there isn't, a, most of the time I can find a little way to get the, get the fact in, but um, so I don't know, it's just, writing is so personal. It's like some people have these long, you know, 20 page outlines in detail. And I wish I was one of those people, but I'm, I'm really not. It's just not the way my brain works. When we're talking about uh, characters, I mean, these are characters because they're in your fictional book, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they, they live they're, they There's facts right. about them. And of course, when you're looking at someone's entire life, because you know, the endings for all of these, when they themselves do not. Yeah. Uh, and I assume that these people are changing, some of them changing and evolving, uh, right. always for the better. Um, but, you know, over the course of a human life, uh, if you're the same person when you walk out of this world as you were when you came in, there'll be some things that are same. But if you didn't evolve or grow, what did you do the whole time you were here? Um, so how do you go about creating these characters so that they serve your purposes within your narrative while still preserving our best guess about who they would have been and not just who they were overall, but who they were in that particular moment before whatever Dubinsky is going to come to, to change them? That's a, that's a great question. And, um, you know, with my first book, writing about it, um, Susanna Bowling, a 16-year-old girl, that was a real, like, I wrote that as a real coming of age of, of kind of, um, you know, her kind of her hubris of she wants to be out on the battlefield. She wants to, you know, get all these accolades from General Washington and all that kind of stuff. And, and then her arriving at humility by the end and realizing so many other people have contributed more to the war than she did and that she doesn't, she doesn't need that, that it's a team effort. And then with Dolly, I tried to portray her as being, you know, a little bit nervous and a little bit intimidated by her husband's intelligence and then really coming into her own. And, um, but the, you know, I feel like the character arc needs to be a lot bigger when you're dealing with like a girl as opposed to an adult who's already grown, you know, um, that, that it isn't, you know, the, the coming of age is usually, you know, geared to a younger person, but, um, but that's a good reminder of the, um, you know, I'm writing it and I'm writing it with, um, uh, I'm writing it now as if Elizabeth Van Loo is, is determined. And I really probably should be having a lot more of her being a little nervous. You know, I mean, she was always known for being very outspoken, but I should have it that she is nervous about, about um, really coming forward and, show her resolve and if she decides I'm just going to go for it I don't care what people think I've got to like I've got to go with my conscience and her her Elizabeth Van Loo's grandfather was the founder of the Philadelphia Abolition Society and her um her grandfather's sister so her great aunt was a big um nurse during the Revolutionary War so I think um a lot of for her, a lot of her motivation was honoring her ancestors of living up to her grandfather. And, and he was mayor of Philadelphia also. So, um, but yeah, I, I do, I think that's a good point is I should probably introduce kind of a little bit more nervousness and wavering on her part. And then her just doubling down of just like, this is wrong. And this is just something I have to do, or I'm not going to be able to sleep at night. And, 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 and I do think that's, is what happened. Um, she kept a um, journal on her night table where she would write things, but she kept it on her night table so that if she, you know, the 
police came and arrested her in the middle of the night for being a spy that she could destroy her journal. And, um, and then it, she also buried parts of it in her backyard <laughs> that were um, dug up later on. But a lot of the, you know, it, it's, there's definitely parts of her journal that are missing, but there's a lot that's still there. So it's neat to be, actually be able to write her own words, but, um, but I, you know. Yeah, would have inspired her to keep a journal knowing that that could have unraveled so much were it discovered. I mean, why, why is she keeping notes on a criminal conspiracy? Right, but I, I think it also goes to like, you know, even this woman was tough as nails, but like even she was human. And it was like, you know, that's what I was kind of writing the other day of her, like, you know, this is my one friend that I can trust is my journal because you have to be so careful about what you were saying and what you were doing that, you know, even she needed an outlet to get her feelings down of the being a social, I mean, this woman had like John Marshall in her house. She had, um, she had um, Edgar Allan Poe reading The Raven in her parlor. I mean, they were the height of Richmond society with the Lees and the Cabells and the Carringtons and all that. And then, you know, during the Civil War, she's completely cut off from society. And, you know, that basically, you know, all of us have our limits of, of the pain that that would cause. So yeah, it really wasn't wise of her, but it does show that even she needed some sort of reassurance, even if it was the reassurance she was giving herself by keeping her journal. But um, I think she maybe had an idea that someday someone will read this and they'll know that I was, I existed. This is something I also did. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point of, of, for posterity, but gosh, it just must have been hard to imagine when really the whole town is turned. I mean, people were threatening to burn her house down. I mean, people were threatening her all the time. And, um, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I, hopefully she did. I mean, she definitely thought she was on the right side of history. And, you know, I mean, she, there's, quotes in her journal of like forgive them they know not what they do and um just um her despair was just um it's just heartbreaking uh, but what's interesting is a lot of people who felt that way moved north and she didn't because she felt like she could affect change being in virginia and she also felt like um she didn't want to abandon her slaves there either and wanted to stay and, and take care of them and take care of the people. But what's interesting also it, when we were talking earlier about the, um, the uh, blurred lines of things is she wasn't an abolitionist. She thought abolitionists were crazy before the war. Like she thought they were total extremists, it, just as extreme as the, the fire eaters they called the people down in the, in the deep South. And um, she wanted to work this, she wanted to change the system from within by showing, providing a good example of, oh, you know, look at this woman, she treats her slaves so well, blah, blah, blah. You know, she lets, you know, lets them live out and, and, and take odd jobs, she pays them. And trying to basically erode the system over time gently without all this upheaval. And so that's what's interesting because people love to say she was an abolitionist and it's like, she actually really wasn't. She thought that was too extreme. And, um, but obviously it didn't work of this kind of, um, you know, notion of lead by example and, and hopefully slavery will 
come to its come to an end on its own and you know um you know obviously didn't happen but um but just how we tend to look at things with these rose-colored glasses of you know being an abolitionist and even this woman with these strong beliefs thought those people were fanatics when you're dealing with these type of characters these slaveholders or or, or whoever is it important for you, how, how do you establish empathy so that you can write about them and remove judgment? Because, of course, we're living in a later time where things have a long way to go, but have progressed significantly from where you're dealing with and, and, and where your characters are living. How can you separate your modern judgment away from, from those old values or can you? Um, I guess... Um... It's, it's hard to separate, you know, what we just, you know, feel so deep in our soul is this is so wrong, but it's interesting to just under, to hear their mindset. I mean, it, it's sickening. I mean, you know, they call slavery a Christianizing institution and, you know, these people are, you know, inferior and they can't, you know, we're helping them and um, they can't provide for themselves. And, you know, I, I mean, like, like I have a whole section of slavery of like all these kind of comments so that I can kind of, you know, weave those in of people. But what's, what I like to do and what, you know, um, you know, people say is the key to good writing is showing, not telling so that you're showing these people saying, um, um, sh showing them saying these, you know, horrible, you know, bigoted, racist prejudicial comments and letting the reader decide, oh my gosh, this person is awful. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying they're awful. I'm just saying, this is what they said. You, you make up your mind what you think. And, you know, but I'm wanting the reader to say, oh my gosh, this is awful. How do they think that way? But, um, you know, it's just a much more effective way of saying someone's nice or someone's mean, showing them being nice and showing them being mean, you know, is, is, um, you know, carries so much more impact with the reader. So um, that's why, like, I like this character, Mary, Elizabeth's sister-in-law, I really want to just show her, have her talking. And that's, that's just how she was raised. That's, that's the world she knows. And in um, some of these other people, I mean, when Virginia seceded from the reunion, there were all these Richmond society ladies outside on Capitol Square with champagne toasting. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, they had no idea what they were doing. You know, these people were, you know, there were, there were parades through the streets of Richmond that went on like 24 hours a day with people with torches and singing um, Dixie and bands singing La Marseillaise. And um, just the revelry was like, unbelievable. Like people closed their shops because everyone was just out in the streets celebrating. And, you know, there were fireworks at night. There were, I mean, and then, it, then you know, Richmond became like an armed camp with all these soldiers flooding in from all over the place as, you know, when Richmond became the capital of the Confederacy. But um, I just kind of want people to have the same reaction that I do reading this stuff of just like, oh my gosh, you know, just these people had no idea what they were doing. And just how deluded they were and you know they thought you know they're they're yelling things like oh we're gonna march into washington city and we're gonna kick lincoln out of the white house and i mean you know it's just like oh my gosh that happened right here and 
these, just think goodness modern Americans would never try to storm the Capitol and create <laughs> <laughs> trouble. Yeah, never put a, uh, you know, what a Viking helmet on. and uh, No, goodness, no. We are uh, modern civilized people. We would never do such a thing. Well, you just realize, though, that people are people and just how people, um, you know, the herd mentality of, you know, people, you know, Virginia had just voted um, within two weeks before by a two to two to one margin not to secede from the Union. And then when Fort Sumter happened and then Lincoln called up the troops and then all this fur started and, and these secessionists were great agitators. And uh, that's a line I'm stealing from a book, but they were able to just gin up the crowd and could, they controlled the media. And, and then also they tried to work on the women that the, the patriotic women were the ones who wanted to leave the union. So they got the women on their side and you know the women were walking around with these like palmetto leaves to symbolize South Carolina and you know, um, you know, every day of like, oh, I hope we're going out of the union today. I can't live another day. And, you know, um, and, you know, then they started making, you know, uniforms and all these, you know, things, but just kind of trying to get, um, you know, getting the support of the women was a big thing, but just playing on people's emotions. I mean, it was just a very um, volatile time with people's, people were just infuriated that, Lincoln was calling up Virginia troops that he wanted to send down to South Carolina to put down the rebellion. And they were basically like, if we're going to be firing our weapons at anyone, we'd rather fire them at the North and fire them at our Southern brethren. And um, so, you know, who knows what would have happened if, if um, you know, if, if Fort Sumter hadn't happened. I mean, we'll never really know, but that was really the thing that blew everything apart. But it, at the time of Fort Sumter, there were already, I think it was either six or seven states had withdrawn from the Union. And then after Fort Sumter, the border states, you know, the other um, seven withdrew. But, you know, so it's like the Confederate States of America were not formed overnight. It took like, you know, it was months. Um, was I kind of thought it was all, they all withdrew and, you know, and it just wasn't, it wasn't, once again, it wasn't clear cut, you know, at all. Um, well, they're dealing yeah. about letters on horseback. Nobody's emailing anybody to to make yeah. things happen immediately. Well, yeah, this and that's what's neat too is realizing like they had um, they had um, the telegrams back then, so things would go by telegraph, and then they would the telegraph would go from like one station to the next station, and then it would get relayed from that station. So it would take like you know two or three hours to get a telegram, um, but you know that was like revolutionary, but. Like even with Fort Sumter happening, it was um, interesting because Richmond had just had these horrific rains and they had no contact with the outside world because the, the whole telegraph, they weren't able to receive telegraphs. So people were just really freaking out, wondering, you know, what's going on and, and all that. So that's what's kind of neat too, is just even finding out what the weather was like back then and what... Um, you know, what, what the circumstances were. So people were even, you know, extra like ginned up because they were cut off from communication and um, just, you know, the whole city just exploded when they got these telegrams about Fort Sumter surrendering and, and, uh, and, you know, people had Confederate flags all, you know, every house had a Confederate flag in front of it. And, um, and meanwhile, Elizabeth Van Lue had this huge American flag in front of her house that she eventually had to take down for really her own safety. 
Um, but she was the first person to put up a General Grant sent her a flag. And she was the first person to hang an American flag after the um, after the Richmond fell. So um, so in, in another neat fact was that the because Jefferson Davis set fire to the Richmond when he left, when he fled, he um, wanted to set like Tredegar Ironworks and all the important places on fire so the Union wouldn't have control of them. But then the fire spread and um, and it was basically black, it was black Union troops who were the first ones to come in who came and put out the fires. So there's some certain irony there. But yeah, so the Union troops were like, they were the ones who put out the fires. I mean, it, that's just amazing. So much of the, you know, and they were trying to burn all the records and everything on their on their way out the door, but. So if I've got a time machine and I could say to you that you can go, you can't go to the future, uh, but you can go anytime in America's past, you pick the nice, calm Goldilocks zone where it's going to be great. Everybody's getting along. Where are you going? Oh gosh, if I could pick one time, I actually would love to go to the, uh, one of Dolly Madison's squeezes. That's what I would love to go back to the War of 1812 and be at one of um, Dolly Madison's um, parties. I think that would be really awesome just to see all those political figures in one room all interacting with each other and, and to actually meet Dolly, I think would be really awesome. That would be very fun. I'll have to try to think about that tonight when I fall asleep so that maybe I have a dream that I'm at a, uh, <laughs> one of Dolly's squeezes, but. Um, it would be neat, though, to see Richmond during the Civil War. I mean, the suffering in Richmond was amazing because the population exploded, like quadruple, because all of a sudden it was a capital, you know, it was a, you know, the capital city of the Confederacy. And then all the war, so many of the battles were fought right around Richmond that all the prisoners of war were brought there. And then all the wounded on both sides were brought there. Basically, like everybody's house in Richmond turned into like a hospital to caring for an injured soldier. And, um, you know, the inflation was like 700%. And I mean, there was a blockade all the way down the East Coast and it went all the way up the Mississippi around the South. So, I mean, people were starving and in Richmond in particular, and housing was so short that, and the Confederacy didn't have any mo money or time to, um, to make any more buildings, you know, to build anything, you know, they were trying to, you know, build things for the military. So people were, people couldn't even find anywhere to rent. It got to the point where people would, you could rent like someone's, the floor in their parlor from like eight o'clock at night till six in the morning. And that was, you know, and then it was incredibly expensive because just because there was, the housing was so limited and for the amount of people that were flooding in. And, and then there were a lot of people who were flooding in because, they felt safer there, that they were better protected than, you know, there were people who had like both armies trudging across their fields having battles. I mean, you know, it literally happened. So there were, you know, people flooding in from all over the place for a multitude of different reasons. And, and some people were even bringing in there and they were bringing their slaves in there as a, to kind of keep the slaves, you know, in check so that, one of the, you know, the Union Army wouldn't come through and, and take off with them. Um, so, um, you know, people were so thrilled that 
Richmond was going to be the capital of the Confederacy, and they really had no idea what they were signing up for because it just made Richmond a huge target. And and then the city ended up in ashes by the end. And I mean, at that point, Richmond was the most industrialized city in the South. And then it's really never recovered. I mean, it's not any, you know, it's Atlanta is a much bigger city, um, Charlotte. It's, you know, Richmond has never really totally recovered from the Civil War. I think I find it a little bit difficult to summon the sympathy for the poor folks who couldn't keep their slaves in check. Well, here's the world's smallest <laughs> island. Yes, I I hear you. It's but it is it's just interesting of just we are every we are all a product of our past. And um, you know, people, you know, civil war is very taboo now. People don't even like to talk about it, but it's um we're not gonna learn from it if we don't talk about it. And um, you know, there's a lot of nuances out there, but it's um, you know, every place is a product of its history. So, I mean, look at Atlanta. It's like so much of it was burned down. It's all, everything there is new. There's really nothing old there, but, um, but, um, but yeah, but ignoring the past doesn't make it go away. So, um, and, you know, we need to honor the people that suffered so much. And um, this, uh, you know, th this cemetery that I was at the other day, it's in a rough part of town and, and, you know, they built 95, um, you know, um, Interstate 95, and it like went, it went right over an African burial ground. I mean, it's just awful, just absolutely horrible. Because um, this area of Richmond, it used to, uh, it's called Jackson Ward. It used to be known as the Harlem of the South. And they drove, they put 95 right through the middle of it. So, I mean, the area is still there, but it's, I mean, you know, they, you know, it's never going to be the same as what it was when they, you know, put 95 going right through the middle of it. But, um, but it's just good for us all to, to learn from all this. And that's that covers the um, view of the modern world a little bit, I think, because if you're, if you've been running, if you, if you're like me, esteemed audience, and you ran around a little bit during the pandemic, and uh, certainly during the uh, our new neighbor Mike Pence's time in the White House, um, if if you were running around a little bit like, oh my God, everything is on fire, this is just madness. Well, a nice thing about going back and reading our history is like, no, it's it's frequently been on fire. Yeah, yeah. a lot of madness that that continues. I don't know if that's um, comforting, but at least gives you some context for what's going on. Yeah. Right. No, but I, I do find it really comforting to realize of these contentious times and, you know, just, I mean, it, it, that we were, you know, had a civil war going on for five years and, and we got through that. So I, I do think it's comforting and realizing that these, you know, we like to think, oh, everything was all peaceful. And, you know, it's like not everyone was, um, you know, a patriot during the Revolutionary War. You know, one third of the people were loyalists another third were undecided and the other third were patriots so you know we try to you know simplify history but it, there's always going to be just a widespread you know um you know diaspora of uh views you know all over the spectrum so you know the war of 1812 with the federalists and the republicans i mean they couldn't have been more different in their views and it, you know, they had their reasons. I mean, the Federalists were, they were for a strong federal government, like George Washington, like Alexander Hamilton, and John Adams. And, um, 
they wanted a standing army, they wanted a uh, federal bank. And, you know, turns out they were right. I mean, Madison, you know, after the War of 1812, he, he was like, okay, I understand why these call-up militias are not good enough. And, and you know, that, that's one of the great things about Madison is I felt like he's teachable. You know, he learned and his views would evolve. And um, realizing you can't fight a war without a federal bank and, you know, a standing army, especially against the greatest military power in the world. Um, so, you know, Jefferson just had a much more, you know, view of these agrarian farmers and all that, but, you know, but the Federalists, they were all in the shipping industry. So Jefferson had wanted to put in, and Anne Madison as the Secretary of State wanted to put in these embargoes on, um, on trade with Great Britain um, before the War of 1812. And the embargoes ended up really only destroying the economy in the Northeast where the Federalists were. So the Federalists were justifiably angry, like this embargo isn't even working and it's hurting us and it's not hurting you. So, I mean, I, you know, I definitely feel for the Federalists and thought they had every right to be as angry as they were. So that's kind of interesting too. It's when you stop looking at who your team is, you know, if you're team Jefferson or team, you know, Hamilton, and you actually look at what the actual issues are and realizing, okay, well, you know, maybe I'd actually, you know, maybe I'm, I probably am. I probably would have been more of a Federalist at the time, but also they just didn't know what we know then. You know, they just, um, you know, like my my son's a huge history buff, and he was saying that in the Articles of Confederation that were so loosey goosey that he was just saying that that people thought that the Articles of Confederation were asking for too much because people really wanted all the power to remain with the states. So, and then, you know, with the constitution, it's, you know, it amped it up so much that the articles of confederation were too loose and that we needed the constitution. So, um, so, you know, that's the thing of, I try to remind myself of, you know, like I said, if our country started 20 years ago in 2002, when we were, you know, Friends was our favorite show, like that, that we don't, you know, we didn't have that experience to look back on, to, to learn from, that we do, that we can look back, you know, with our kind of critical um, gaze and, and have a different perspective that they just didn't have open to them because they were living through the times, not looking back on them. Something that was a Dan Carlin, I'm sure he was repeating somebody else on his show, Hardcore History. I never get tired of recommending other podcasts that people could be listening to instead of this one, but I'm, I'm a fan of Hardcore History. And something okay, he said, I'm going to have to write that down. Um, the, uh, I believe it was the Ancient Greeks, he, he did an episode, and um, he was talking about now you need to remember that for these people, magic was real and it right. had never occurred to before oh yeah nobody's googling this nobody has the definitive information right. the people are illiterate the people in power say magic is real they keep hearing tales that magic magical acts were performed here i'm sure of course there's some david copperfield trickery going on that convinces them that magic's happening right there but if they're saying that we're about to fight a witch, they're really thinking they're about to fight a witch or they're fighting right. a wizard or whoever the villain is because magic's really. 
So thinking about our own history, nobody's got the internet, nobody, nobody has the, the future in mind of, of how this is all gonna turn out, nor do we currently. Um, it does put a nice perspective on there of, of how these, how, how limited their perspectives might have been in some ways and how little information they would have had, how easy it is to, to take for granted how much information that we have now, so much so that people say, well, I don't need to know what it'll be here in the cloud for me later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like back then a cloud was just a cloud. <laughs> But yeah, just even, um, you know, being able to transmit information too, of, of receiving information because the um, Battle of New Orleans happened on January 8th of 1815. And it took forever, you know, it took about a month basically to get word up from there um, about the, you know, miraculous victory there. And because there were no roads and, and all of that, but also there was an, um, there had been a blizzard that had struck Washington City. Washington City had an epidemic of, um, they call it putrid, it was called putrid sore throat. Um, so that's January 8th. They get the word back, you know, three weeks to a month later. They're celebrating in the streets, you know, for weeks. You know, women out there with pots and pans. Dolly's got candles lit in every window of the Octagon House and nonstop celebration. And then basically once the celebrations stop, all of a sudden... <laughs> someone comes back from the delegation over in Bruges, Belgium with a treaty. And the treaty had been signed on December 24th, 1814. So this was before the Battle of New Orleans. So technically the Battle of New Orleans did not need to have been fought at all because the war was ended. Um, but because of, you know, the, um, you know, the, the challenges of getting word, but also it was, definitely in our best interest that we did have the Battle of, of New Orleans because it's what really made people feel like we won the war, even though the terms of the treaty were very weak. It was, all it did was restore the status quo. It didn't even touch on impressment, which wasn't an issue anymore because Napoleon had been defeated. So the British didn't need to impress our sailors anymore, but it wasn't even mentioned in the agreement. But the perception of people was that we won the war after the Battle of New Orleans, but um, but yeah, just it's um, just pretty crazy when you think about the lack of communication. It's amazing, really. <laughs> Anything got done. Um, what a what a terrible! If you're somebody who was wounded or lost people in the war, and you find out later, oh, it didn't even need to happen. Oh, right. Okay. That's not, a, that's not a good day. Uh, I'm watching our time and it's it's, it's flown right by uh, as, as it always does in a great conversation. Um, before we, we call it a day, I did want to ask about something on your website and that sure. is that you're offering author consultations. Yes. Uh, so I want to make sure I ask just to, to give us a little taste uh, for what you can you can share with us on a, on a podcast for free. What could people look forward to receiving if they were to sign up for one of those consultations? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, Really anything. I'm, you know, I'm a self-published author. So I went through it and it is like, you know, it, and now I understand what people talk about with tearing their hair out. There were times where I was really ready to tear my hair out and how frustrating it can be. And, um, and you know, if you Google self-publish in, you know, online, you're going to get like you know, 2 million hits. I mean, there's just a million people out there who are ready to uh, 
take your money and it's hard to know what to do and what's worth the money and what isn't. So um, I am, that's why I, I really want to leave it open-ended if people are trying to decide, well, do I want to do a hybrid um, publisher? Do I want to try to get an agent? Do I want to, um, or I am self-publishing, but I'm stuck on this and, you know, who should I use for an editor and who should I, um, how should I do the cover or how do I set this up or who do you use for formatting or, and I, I do a lot of this, um, a, a lot with people that I'll meet at a talk or I'll meet through someone or a friend of a friend. And I've found, I spend hours and hours and hours and hours helping people. And I like doing that, but I've finally gotten to the point where I'm like, it would be nice to be compensated somewhat for some of my time because I could lose a whole afternoon of my own writing time. And, um, um, and I feel like sometimes some of the advice people have given me, you know, it was worth $500. Like sometimes what someone can just tell you will save you like months of research where you wouldn't even find the answer on the internet. So I kind of just put that out there as an, as an open thing and, and happy to tailor it to whatever someone is looking for. But, you know, I've been through the process twice and, um, and, and also marketing. A lot of people approach me with asking for help with marketing and, and, you know, I'd be happy to help someone come up with a marketing plan of what kind of, you know, bookstores do you want to try to get your, your um, book into and, you know, approaching different groups to become a speaker and, and all of that. Cause it, it really is. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's kind of overwhelming of how many different avenues you can take. So, um, so I'm kind of experimenting with it and seeing, but I'm, I would be very open to tailoring it to whatever, um, whatever help someone is, is looking for. And, um, and I, you know, I, I'm happy to even do editing as well. So I actually just tuck, put that on my website, just probably within the last month of, of putting that out there. Cause I, I love helping people and so many people have helped me along the way. And I'm, I will forever be grateful for that. So, um, but I realized too, is the information that I know now, I would have paid a ton of money for it. If I could have sat down and paid someone a few hundred dollars and all the heartache, it would have helped me. Even setting up your, your um, setting up a small business is like, I, I was a French major. I mean, international relations, like I've never run a small business. And there's so many things now that I wish someone had told me at the very beginning of like, you know, just, you know, keep a list of, you know, keep a list of every time you send books to like Mount Vernon and, and like now I need to go back and I need to go all the way back to the beginning and realize, cause I'd love to be able to say, oh, I've, I've sold 500 books to Mount Vernon, but I didn't, I didn't keep records of that from the beginning and just all sorts of things. There's just so many different aspects of it. And um, so many things that I've just learned, <laughs> learned the hard way that I'd be happy to save someone else some heartache and um, you know, and, um, when it doesn't have to be, but, you know, writing it's, can be very solitary and it's, um, sometimes it's, it's just nice to have like a, some, a mentor out there, somebody rooting for you is, you know, that you know that it can be done and someone actually has crossed the finish line and give you some tips. So it's not quite as painful getting there. Well, you can also uh, start a podcast and you'd be amazed at the, at the incredible people that will come and offer you advice <laughs> for no compensation whatsoever. Um, as far as marketing goes, I saw that your events page for this year is just, your dance card is very full. 
Um, you're you're constantly out and about and speaking. I'm sure that was curtailed a bit during uh, the the quarantine, but you know, hopefully now that we're approaching the endemic stage, whenever that officially becomes the declaration or ahead of the new variant, whatever whatever is happening in the future, yeah. all of this will age badly by the time this airs. It always does when we talk about the the pandemic, um, but. As far as going forward, how are you getting all of those events booked and planned? Are you doing that on your own? Do you have a publicist that helps you with that? You no, know, I, I, I say it's like the Wizard of Oz. You pull back the curtain and it's just me. Um, <laughs> so I, I do all of it. So um, I'm still small. You know, it's um, I'm not really making enough money to hire someone else. And I'm not, uh, and a lot of ways, sometimes it's just easier to just do it yourself and you know, it's done. And, and, you know, I, I want to have my emails have the right tone and I want to, you know, that, you know, people have said, Oh, you should hire someone. And I just, um, you know, I just keep a lot of notes and got a lot of, a lot of sticky pages and, but it's just, it's cultivating relationships and meeting people and following up and, um, you know, and then uh, finding like, you know, just finding neat people on Instagram and trying to connect and, and all that. But um, I try to keep my, um, you know, my website updated with all my events so that I kind of use it myself as like making sure, okay, I have this at this time. And so the minute I book something, I put it on there. So, cause it's easy to lose control of all the details um, because each, each, you know, each gig is a separate email chain and a separate, you know, whole separate, you know, story. So it's, um, it's just uh, trying to be organized to keep on top of it. And, um, and then just kind of, kind of give myself a tickler to follow up with someone of, oh, I was going to hear from them in February. I haven't heard from them. I'll send them an email and see if they want to set something up. But, but yeah, the pandemic definitely put the kibosh on a lot of things, especially the school visits, which is a bummer because I, you know, I love it all, but I love doing the school visits. So it seems to be picking back up. So um, I'm looking forward to that. And I, I like doing the Zoom school visits. That's a lot of fun. I just had one a couple of weeks ago with a group in um, California. So that was really fun. Um, so yeah, I, I do. So I do, I speak at retirement homes, I, historical societies, um, museums, schools um anybody anybody who wants to listen to me talk i'm i'm there um i love it so it's because i'm i'm more of an extrovert so sitting home all day long every single day gets old writing i mean i enjoy that but it's nice to get out and do book signings and all that well, presumably once you've gone someplace and you've given an amazing presentation they're going to refer you to other places and that will help keep the ball rolling you yeah. right that definitely helps is getting out there and meeting people and each person you meet you know refer or you know um like i i do the um uh i get a table at berkeley plantation here in virginia they have a first thanksgiving that that was the first thanksgiving in america so they have a first thanksgiving celebration in november and and that's great. I always just meet so many interesting history nerds like myself. So like I met someone from the Sons of the American Revolution. So I'm speaking to his group in a couple of weeks, but I met him at that. So that it is good. Every time I go out to an event, you just meet other people. And, and then I'll try to find Facebook groups. Like lately I've been trying to find homeschool groups um, on Facebook and um, 
just trying to kind of be be out there and um receptive and then every once in a while i'll get yesterday i got an email from a woman in uh uh Nashville and she just found my book online and liked it and and wanted to um have me do a zoom talk with her class so like that that's an awesome feeling when I actually didn't even do anything and someone has found me so that's that's really neat so it you know it comes in fits and starts sometimes I feel like oh my gosh there's nothing going on and then sometimes you know there's I'm getting all these emails and you know so it just it just it's kind of cyclical um never but, finds a nice even steady I, at least my inbox never does yeah just crickets or everybody in the world suddenly needs something right this minute right right it is funny yeah definitely but it's also too is it's it's um you know um once i uh when i first published my first book this was three and a half years ago i went into it there's a really neat richmond history museum called the valentine and um and I went in there and they, they bought some books and, and then, um, and I had also gone to St. John's church and they said, oh, well, right now we're not in a buying mode where, you know, the time of year, we're not buying books right now, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay. And, and then they emailed me a few days later and they said, oh, somebody from our office was at the Valentine and they saw your book there and now we want it. So we're going <laughs> to you know, buy books. So that's the thing is once you get in one place, like when I tell people, okay, my books are at Mount Vernon, my books are at Colonial Williamsburg, or, you know, they're at Poplar Forest, or, you know, St. John's Church, then people think, oh, okay, it's been vetted. So that's, it kind of, it, that makes it easier, too, the more, you know, it kind of, you know, creates its own momentum, too. Um, you know, the hardest part is really getting started. But, um, so, you know, but I've realized, like, with the Susanna book, it's more, it's been more popular with schools. Of course, the pandemic, is, you know, creates its own issues, but because it's a revolutionary war book and most schools don't read or don't study the War of 1812, um, which I think, you know, now I think they that we should, but um, so that's kind of been one with like the, like at the retirement homes when I like send them an email and I'll say, oh, I've got to talk on Dolly Madison. I've got one on Susanna Bowling. And you know, they're like, oh, Dolly Madison, because they know she is, you know, like the older crowd really likes her. So, um, so that's neat. It's just got um, different, you know, um, different audiences. And, you know, the Dolly Madison ties in with like the First Ladies Museum, like, I'm not, they're supposed to reopen this spring, and they said they were going to carry it and have me do like a virtual event with them. So that would be neat. So that's kind of neat. And I've got it in the Dolly Madison book is at the, um, George um, W. Bush Presidential Museum and um, and the other George H. W. They're looking at it, and I've emailed a bunch of others. So that's the thing is you, you kind of just send out the emails, and then if you hear back, you hear back, and if you don't, you don't. But at least you know you tried. Um, Do you have like a set list every day of I need to send out this many emails or this week, or is it just in batches where I feel inspired to see how many people I can reach out to today? Yeah, I just get certain, like yesterday, I did a lot of emailing and that kind of things. Because sometimes I'm just like, it's just hard to keep, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing. And and um, so I go through kind of, um, you know, different days where I feel like motivated and it's fun. And and then you can kind of cut and paste. And it's, it is easier to do like to do a whole bunch at once. And then like I went through all the presidential museums and I'm like, okay, let me do this. And and or like I'll do research like 
okay, what are the, you know, 10 biggest retirement homes in, you know, Virginia? And then I'll, I'll, you know, go through all that. And then I'll email all of them and just kind of throw it out there and see who I hear back from and um, kind of do it all at once. But because after a while, it gets kind of tedious, just the emails and stuff like that. So I try to mix it up, like do the writing for a few hours and then do that when I'm kind of a little more mindless um, as a way to take a break. And then, you know, so it's sometimes, sometimes you hear right back and, and sometimes somewhere you think you're going to hear back from, you never hear back from. So you just never know. It's, um, I just think anyone's waiting. If you're listening to this and wondering when is Rod going to reply to my email, <laughs> uh, my inbox fills up and I pick about two days a week and say, like, all right, yeah, uh, all my writing for the day for uh, the next 30 minutes, nothing but clearing out these emails that have accumulated. And so five days later, you might get a response from me. It's not because I wasn't in a hurry to talk to right. you. Stuff I had to do. Well, yeah, but it's also, you know, the whole batching concept is so much, it's so much more time effective than like, you know, stopping what you're doing to answer one email. And, you know, I mean, it's, um, cause yeah, no, you you'd never get written, right? Yeah. You'd never get it. Yeah. You'd never get anything done. Yeah. So you kind of have to like unplug and, but it is tempting though. You, you hear the little ding and all that stuff, but, um, so, but, um, but it is nice. Like I like, once I get into the researching and all that, it's kind of neat where I'm like, Oh, three hours went by and I, you know, it just flew, you know? Um, so that's, that's neat. Um, so I kind of, I kind of go with like whatever my muse is for the day of feeling, you know, whatever I feel inspired, but I definitely go through times where I'm just like, oh, I just can't send another email and, you know, just kind of, it's, you know, it's hard to keep, you know, plug in, plug in, plug in. Um, so that's why it's Not just, you know, there might be some of my favorite people in the world waiting there in the inbox. Right. Not right now. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it. Right, right. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is, is, um, yeah, I don't mind that at all. I, I also feel like, okay, I know I tried and, you know, it, instead of, I was like, say to myself, it's better to have someone say no or not reply. Um, than for me to say no to myself, oh, I'm sure they wouldn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, okay, I tried. If I don't hear back, it took me five minutes and then I've done my part and it's, you know, the universe can answer me whether it's out there and, and like stuff. I mean, I found stuff too, where um, there was a homeschool review and I, I just was looking through my Facebook emails and um, I realized that I was supposed to send this woman book like six months ago and I forgot. And I wrote back and I said, I'm so sorry. I just saw this. Can I send them to you now? And she was like, sure. And so it, you know, it happens on both ends where it's, it's, it's hard when you've got that amount of traffic to keep up with everything. But that's why I've got all my scribbled little notes and everything. I feel like if I write it down, you know, each day of like, I need to respond to this or send an invoice for that, that kind of thing. Um, but, um, but yeah, there's always, there's always room for human error in everything. I so. need to replay this part of the conversation for myself the next time I'm refreshing my inbox and thinking, why hasn't this person got back to me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know you just never, yeah, you just never know, really. Um, I mean, I had something the other day. It was so funny. Usually I have an event and I just, I usually email like the morning of and say, okay, I'm coming. I mean, this was totally booked. I, you know, it was, it was, you know, Tuesday at two o'clock. I had it all. Um, I had even given them a W9. I'd given them an invoice. 
And then I emailed them last week. I was kind of on the ball last week and then I didn't hear anything back. And then it was like, so then Tuesday morning I called and usually I would just kind of show up. It was like, oh, you know, I mean, I already, well, it turns out they were like, oh my gosh, we totally forgot about you. We double booked and we've got a George Washington interpreter coming at the same time. Can you just come another time? And I was like, okay, like, you know, so, um, so, but then they've rescheduled and they're like, okay, we want you to have come twice. We want to have you talk about each of your books and, you know, so it all worked out. I mean, it, you know, but it was just kind of funny, like, you know, it, it just things happen. Um, so I had an afternoon to write that I didn't expect to have. So that, that worked out well, but yeah, it was just kind of funny, but it was just one of those where I was like, I was like thinking, why am I calling them? Usually I just, you know, and it was like, I just had this feeling. I'm like, I just have a feeling about this one. And uh, so, but you just got to be flexible with people. You just, you know, it's just things are going to happen. And, and I know when I, I, I've, I've messed some things up too. So <laughs> I'm always happy when someone shows me a little grace. So. Well, when you're dealing with uh, book people, Anything book related, nine times out of 10, you're not dealing with somebody where that's their primary job. Right. Um, I'm talking to a book publicist. They they may have a day job while they're building their publicist relations on the side. Certainly literary agents, we've heard enough of them on the show talk about they're working the job that pays the rent and then doing the literary agenting on, on, on the top of it. Um, and it's just, you know, people get busy, people have lives. Yeah, sugar is I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so then it's always but a pleasant surprise when an email pops in your inbox and you know, so um you have so. been extremely uh, generous with your time this afternoon, which I greatly appreciate. And I know oh, as well. Uh, we can't get out of here uh, without me asking about flying saucers and ghosts, because I ask everybody about flying saucers and ghosts. Have you seen either of those? I have not, um, but they do say that the ghost of Dolly Madison is in Washington City. In particular, they say at the White House and at the Octagon House, but um, she used to love this lilac perfume. She would wear this all the time. So they say, if you're in Washington, D.C. and you catch a whiff, a whiff of lilac, that that means that the ghost of Dolly Madison is, is nearby. You should leave a book out for her. And wouldn't that be so wonderful if the actual ghost of Dolly Madison could sit down and like, well, this is what you got wrong. I like this part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More of the, write, write another book and put more of this part of me in it. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, what's neat too is someone told me that Elizabeth Van Lu, her home was basically the grandest enrichment and it was torn down. And they, there's now an elementary school there. And um, someone told me, this woman who does tours, she's another history geek. She does historic tours in Richmond, ghost tours. And that um, that apparently Elizabeth Van Lu haunts this elementary school and that there'll be like a kindergartner who makes her way all the way down to the office of the school. And that and the, um, the woman in the office will say, well, how did you get here? And say, I don't know, this, this lady, this old lady helped me. I mean, she was kind of weird looking, but she was really nice, but she walked me down here. So that they say that Elizabeth Van Lu hunts the school in a good way. Um, yeah, it sounds about like the most uh, pleasant encounter you can have with a ghost if she just helps you find directions. Oh, great. <laughs> right, right. 
Yes. More of those, less of all other kinds of ghosts, I say. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. No, thankfully. But I do have a friend who um I can even um hook you up with her. She um is a she is a PhD now in in um paranormal and she does all these historical um she she goes to these different historical sites and does paranormal research while she's there. And she's had some really disturbing encounters. I mean, she said nice encounters, but she said some scary encounters also. So I'll have oh, to very fun. Yeah, I'll have to hook you up with her. She's very interesting and knows a lot. I think I love hearing other people having those encounters. Me, I'm gonna stay here through the exactly. same uh, podcast yeah. screen. <laughs> but exactly. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. She can she can have all those encounters she wants, and I'm happy to hear about them and read about them, but yeah. Where can esteemed audience uh, find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Let's see. Well, um, I am on Facebook, um, Libby McNamee author, and same on Instagram, Libby McNamee author. So it's um, McNamee is a hard one. It's M-C-N-A-M-E-E. And I've also got a website, LibbyMcNamee.com. And I've got a monthly newsletter if anyone would like to sign up for that. So I've got historical tidbits. Last month, I did one on the um, George Washington's inoculation um, uh, initiative during the Revolutionary War, inoculating soldiers for smallpox. So I do that and I include like a historic recipe and um, try to make it interesting for history geeks and it's not make it a big advertisement. So it's fun. I enjoy it. So um, if you'd like to sign up for that, that's on my, that's on my website at LibbyMcNamee.com. So, so thank you very much, Rob. This was awesome. The time has flown. Being a tremendous guest, you're going to keep writing. So eventually we'll have to get together and do this again. That sounds great. And I, as I, always, uh, an 1812 gathering in uh, somewhere in Indiana that maybe someday I'll head out there and go to that. Oh, I'm sure we've got reenactments happening all over the place. I think it's Marion, Indiana, I think where it is. It's like the largest reenactment, largest gathering. I know we have a very large one there. I don't know if it's the largest. Okay. But they've got, you know, they've got cannons that they, they shoot off uh, somehow safely. I know they were... I never read about anybody getting hit by a stray cannonball. So they're, <laughs> they're <laughs> right. fingers uh, crossed. Um, as always, uh, esteemed audience, for interviews with uh, thousands of literary agents, editors, authors, publishing professionals, all the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.